And so if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 17, uh, that's where we're going to be. But before we go any further, uh, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can come to share, to look at your word, to learn, and to uh, engage with what you are saying to us together. Lord, we thank you that as we look at, the, uh, at your word, we don't just look at words on a page or some uh, ideas of what someone is saying, but Lord, as we look at your word, there is truth to be found and truth to be heard. And so, Lord, we pray that as we gather together this morning, we would hear once again your word, your truth, speaking into our lives and into this world today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12 and going down to verse 17, and the letter to the church in Pergamon, where we hear this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. You didn't even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lived. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So, after the, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these seven letters to the churches in Revelation together. And as we've been looking at these letters, we've not only seen that these are prophetic visions of Jesus speaking to his church, but they're also messages for the church that John was writing to, or that Jesus was writing to through John, but also messages that we can hear as the church of today as well. Whilst I was on sabbatical, I listened to a sermon series based on these letters, and time and time again, as I was listening to what was being said, I heard, I just sat there and thought, this is a message that I want our church to hear as well. And so we're going to, that's what we're doing, we're working our way through these letters, looking at what God is saying to us here in Cambridge through them. So two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Ephesus and how they had uh, been a great and active church, full of energy, full of life, but there was something wrong. They'd lost their first love, and a church without love, if you remember, is nothing. 
And so the message to the church was to return back to being not just a church of action, but a church devoted to Jesus in love for who he is. And then last week, sadly, I wasn't able to to be here, but we looked at the church of Smyrna, a great letter, a church that was under immense pressure. And we were reminded that no matter how tough and how difficult times might get, God is still moving. God is still working and he will bring us through no matter what pressure we might be facing. And today we're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamon. And Pergamon was a great illustrious city in the province of Asia Minor. Uh, This was a place full of brains and intelligence. Uh, Their influence was huge. Pergamon was known for having the second largest library in the known ancient world. Even the word parchment, the stuff that books is made out of, apparently came from Pergamon. So Pergamon was the place that invented the stuff that books is made out of. It was a place of great power and prestige and worldly wisdom. This was an intelligent city, a place of innovation and global significance. And when I think of Pergamon, I very quickly think it sounds an awful lot like Cambridge, doesn't it? It's a place of intelligence, a place of innovation, a place of brains, of worldly wisdom. We have Cambridge University down the road, Cambridge University Library. I've never been in it, uh, but I imagine it's full of books. Um, We have some of the greatest minds, some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest industry all happens here in Cambridge. Cambridge and Pergamum are not too dissimilar. So what did Jesus have to say to the church in Pergamon? And what might that mean for us today? As with all the letters to the seven churches, Jesus starts his letter with an introduction to who is sending this letter to the church. But, and his introduction of who Jesus is differs depending on the message he wants to communicate with each church. And if you beg the pun, this uh, introduction that Jesus makes to the church in Pergamon is particularly striking. He talks about a double-edged sword flowing out of his mouth. Listen to this again in verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus gets straight to the point. In announcing who he is, he's effectively saying to the church uh, that people all around you know all about Pergamon. They know that you're wise. They know that you're smart. They know you've got fancy books. They know that you are the place of worldly truth and that you teach to people who come and read your books. But this is who I am. I'm the one whose words might not be in your library, but my words are as sharp as a double-edged sword. As we know already, we've looked at this time and time again throughout the last couple of weeks, but Revelation is a book of imagery. So let's consider what's the the imagery and significance of this double-edged sword that Jesus says is coming out of his mouth. 
Well, if you've got your Bibles and you want to look ahead to Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John, who's writing this vision of what he sees as Jesus reveals himself to him, writes in verse 11 that he said, and he says this, I saw heaven standing open, and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And then in verse 15, he goes on to say, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus' message is clear. Pergamon might have been a big deal. It might have been the center of the known world. It might have been this great provincial city, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. Pergamon might think it's the source of knowledge that it's true, got full of truth and wisdom, but Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the sword of truth. I'm the one who can strike down the nations. True wisdom doesn't come from your books, but it comes from me. It comes from the fear of the Lord. If you want to find what is true, don't look in your library. Look to Jesus. We're living in a time where there is a battleground for truth. The era of fake news the era of information warfare, the era where truth is no longer universal, but what is true depends on what I want to be true. This morning, can we hear that the word, oh, that the truth really, truly matters? The truth defines how we live our lives. It defines how, what we stand for and what we live for. Jesus wants his church to be under no doubt. The truth is under attack. Our minds are under attack. He wants us to hold on to what is true in the face of the lies that so often and so easily surround us in this world. So that's the first part of Jesus' greeting, but then he goes on to the second part of the greeting, which I find a little bit um, intriguing. I don't know about you, but if I went on to Rightmove or one of other house finding websites are available and I saw a house advertised and it said, lovely spacious property, uh, access to an amazing library, and by the way, you've got the throne of Satan as a neighbor. Come and buy a house. Um, I don't know about you, but it's not the sort of place that I would like to go and live in. And that's effectively what Jesus says in this passage. Jesus says that he's the ultimate source of truth. But he also says, I see where you live. I see who your neighbor is. I see what you're standing against. You're living literally next door to the throne of Satan. You are in a battle and I am standing with you. Pergamon was not so much fighting off pressure that surrounded it like the church in Smyrna was last week, but it was in a battle against deception that was creeping in from the outside world into the church. The culture that surrounded it was creeping in to those who were following Jesus. We live in an increasingly secular world. 
We go to church once a week and we worship Jesus and then we go home and then we spend another six days living in a world that doesn't recognize Jesus, that doesn't recognize the truth of who he is, that doesn't recognize the true way that he calls us to follow him and live our lives for him. And when this is true, how easy it can be for that secular society to define what we believe to be true as we follow Jesus. And there are consequences for us as we turn away from the truth that's found in Jesus and instead adopt this different truth that the world says is true. Instead of looking to Jesus to be the source and the giver of our lives, we start to look elsewhere. And instead of finding the life that Jesus gives us in all our abundance, we ultimately fall short of that which we are craving. And we're left finding a river life that's full of anxiety, depression, fear, and hurt because we're turning away from that which is true and good and looking for something else that's a poorer substitute in its place. Jesus came to give us life and life in all its fullness. If we don't know his truth, if we try to live as, a, as the world says to live rather than what Jesus says, we're going to quickly find that we are failing to live and experience the full freedom of who Jesus has called us to be. Having introduced himself, Jesus moves on to then encourage the church. He sees the church at Pergamum and he says he knows that what they're battling against. He sees the throne of Satan down the road and he says, I, know, I, I see what you're facing, yet you remain true to my name and they've not renounced their faith in Jesus. Pergamum was, a, uh, was based in a pagan and a broken city. No one was on the side of the Christians in Pergamum. They were, fight, they were fighting a tough and a lonely battle. Yet the church continued to remain there. They didn't go off and say, oh, we'll shake the dust off, Perga off our feet in Pergamum and go somewhere else where people will actually listen to the truth of Jesus rather than the truth of the library. Instead, we're going to live for Jesus here in this space no matter how tough it might be. They hadn't run off to find somewhere easier. They stood their ground. They remained faithful. And Jesus sees and commends them for their faithfulness. Now, I'm not saying that here in Cambridge, we have Satan as a neighbor like they did in, in Pergamum. That's not for me to say, that's for Jesus to say. But as a church, we are not called to just dwell and worship Jesus in the holy and the comfortable places where we think that we'd like to be. We're not called to live for him in places where everyone agrees with us, where it's easy, where there's traction. It might be difficult to live for Jesus here in North Cambridge, but we are called to be the light of Christ. And what good is light in a well-lit room? We are called to go and live for Jesus out in the darkness, in the neighborhood where it is not easy to live for him. And as we take a stand, 
It is then that the true light and truth of Jesus can shine through and bring hope and life to all those around us. So there was good stuff happening in Pergamum. They were faithfully standing for Jesus even when it was really difficult. But having encouraged the church, Jesus then sends a big but. And he says, but you may have been faithful, but I have a few things against you. The letter then goes on to talk about the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and we'll look at these in a few moments together. But in verse 14, there's one phrase that really strikes me. Jesus says to the church, there are some among you. There are some among you. This issue that Jesus had with the church was not a widespread issue. The majority of people in the church in Pergamon were doing a great job faithfully standing for Jesus, even with the throne of Satan down the road, but there were some from within who needed correction. We need to be mindful that pressure doesn't just come from outside of churches. Pressure can also come from within. And when pressure is mixed with false teaching, it can become toxic and dangerous to the life of the church. So what was the issue with the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans that had become so dangerous and so toxic in the life of the church in Pergamon? Well, some of you will know the story of Balaam, but in case you don't, let me just run through the highlights of it quickly. You can find the full story in Numbers 22 back in the Old Testament. Um, but Balaam was a soothsayer and a prophet, uh, but not a man of God. And when the Israelites were rampaging around the region, they came to an area called Moab. And the king of Moab, a guy called King Balak, um, asked Balaam to curse the people of God, the Israelites, in order to protect his kingdom and to stop them from invading and taking control. In an unexpected turn of events, Balaam's all set. He's ready to go and curse God's people to stop them uh, from uh, entering the city or the kingdom of Moab. Um, but then Balaam's donkey turns round to, ba to uh, Balaam and points out his foolishness of trying to uh, curse the people of God. So needless to say, when you're told that you're being an ass by an ass, you sit up and listen. Uh, you can take that one home for you. Write that on your sermon notes. Don't be an ass, otherwise you'll be told by an ass. That's the message of Balaam. So Balaam decides that if he can't then curse God's people, then he will instead try to corrupt God's people. So he encourages the women of Moab to go and introduce themselves to the men of Israel, and lo and behold, that he has at the core the desire to corrupt the identity and the purpose of God's people. So, why does that matter? What, does that what impact does that story have to the church today, to the church in Pergamon? Well, there's nothing that Satan wants more than to destroy God's church, to destroy God's people. There's nothing he'd love more than to curse God's people, to stop us from ever proceeding and embracing the kingdom of God. And Balaam shows us that if 
he can't curse us, then he will try to corrupt us instead. He will try and destroy our identity to make us less than that which we, than we are. There is, the truth is that there is no curse that can be brought upon the church. Jesus made sure of that. We've sung about it and celebrated it this morning. Jesus has the victory. Even the curse of death has been defeated. So instead of trying to curse us, Satan will try to corrupt us to corrupt the church by bringing things that are not true, that are not of Jesus, into our church. And as a result, diluting and reducing and destroying the identity of who we are as God's people in this place. So that's the issue with the teachings of Balaam. What about the Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans were slightly different. They used to use the cover of God's grace to do whatever they wanted. Oh, I'll go out and I'll do this, but it's all right. I stand in the grace of God. Or I'll go over there and I'll punch that person in the face, but it's all right. I stand in the grace of God. Uh, they, whatever they did, no matter how bad it might be, it was all okay because God's grace remained. The Apostle Paul addressed this in Romans 6, verses 1 to 2, where he said, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's one thing to struggle with our flesh and our desire to live as we know God wants us to live. We don't have to live a perfect life. It's called being human. However, it's another thing to try and justify the way we are living by backing ourselves up with the grace of God. You can't justify what we want to do just by saying it's all right, God forgives us for it anyway. You can't warp the truth. We've died to sin, so we can't just wallow around it and pretend like it doesn't matter. It does. The grace of God doesn't just forgive us, but it also transforms us. It leads us into new life, not just into dwelling into the stagnantness of the life in which we live. For some in the church in Pergamum, instead of letting grace transform them, They were letting the world and culture around them shape who they were and how they lived and then just saying, but it's all right. We don't have to be distinctive because we've got the grace of God. That's not how the grace of God works. So how does Jesus want the church to respond? Well, again, in verse 16, the message is clear. He calls the church to repent to change their mind, to think differently, to focus on the truth of Jesus rather than on the world around us. In Philippians 4 verse 8, Paul encourages the church uh, to use our minds well. If we've got this battleground for truth in our lives, then that's going to start and take place in our minds. So we need to exercise our minds well. So Paul says to the church to think about what that which is excellent, to think about what is true, to think about what is admirable and praiseworthy. So how can we change our minds and think in a way, or, and think in this way? 
And I think, I think there are three ways that can help us to control our minds and equip us to stand in this battleground for truth in our minds. Firstly, we need to filter what it is that goes into our minds. If you fill your mind with negative thoughts, then you'll start to think negatively. If you start to fill your mind with anger and hate, you'll start to think with those kind of uh, motives fueling your life. Many of us will filter what we put into our bodies as we eat, uh, as we diet, as we don't eat chocolate for Lent or whatever it might be. We, we filter these things that we put into our bodies because we know if we eat well, it affects how healthy we are. And we need to practice that same discipline with our minds. We need to filter what we are putting into our minds that we might live with a healthy mind. Not only do we need to filter what's in our minds, but we also need to fight what's in our minds. Not every thought and every emotion that comes into our minds is good. Not every thought and emotion that comes into our minds is right. So don't just take what we're feeling as being an appropriate response, but fight against that which is not true so that where things creep in that are not good... We don't let it consume us, but we stand in the truth rather than in these things that we're feeling at any time. Finally, we need to have a focus. Whatever we focus on will have the greatest impact on our lives. If we focus on our brokenness, it will lead to despair. If we focus on the hope we have in Jesus, then we will find that hope and life will break through into our lives. We need to filter, we need to fight, and we need to focus so that we might know the truth of Jesus in our lives. Alongside the call to repent, Jesus also offers his church a promise that if they repent, if they change their mind, if they focus on his truth, then they will be victorious. Again, more imagery is used here. Um, and the first bit of imagery we used is that those people who are victorious, who do this, who stand in the truth of Jesus, will receive the hidden manna. So what do we know about manna? Those of you who know are familiar with the Old Testament will again recognize the illustration here. But manna was bread that sustained the Israelites whilst they were out in the wilderness, wandering through the desert. The church in Pergamum may have been living down the road from the throne of Satan, but they may have been struggling to stand in the midst of opposition. But if they continue to remain faithful, the message is they will receive the hidden manna. They will continue to be sustained. The battle will not become too much for them. They won't become too weak. Instead, they'll be energized. They'll be resourced to continue to remain faithful as they stand for Jesus in that place. They are not alone, and they will not be overcome. They can step into victory. Alongside the manna, we're also told that those who are victorious will also receive a white stone with a new name that is written upon it. And there's all sorts of ideas about what this imagery might mean. There's no one clear um, one that is fundamentally true. There's lots of speculation. 
But one possibility is that the Roman games were held in Pergamum. And those who competed in the Roman games, when they won their discipline, when they became a victor, uh, they were given a white stone. And that white stone was not only a medal and a trophy for having competed and won the battle or the discipline in which they were competing, but it was also an invitation to a great feast and a great banquet that happened after the games that all who were victorious were welcomed to come and join in with. If you remember, Jesus himself regularly talked about a great banquet. He often talked about it being a wedding banquet, but I think the imagery continues to go. A great feast in heaven that we as his followers are all invited to join him at. Could it be that this white stone could be a symbol of the hope of that great invitation that we receive as the church, that if we stand victorious, If we continue to stand faithful in truth, then don't worry, there is a better place to come. You will get your white little stone with your name written on it, and you can come and join the greatest party of all eternity. It won't just be the church party with a Kaylee and some pizza. It'll be an even better party than that, and our church party's going to be good. So come along, book your tickets. Uh, We'd love to see you there. Um, But we have a hope and a future to look forward to. We can step into victory. Living as a Christian in Pergamum was clearly a hard place to live, as it can be for us today. We are in a battle for our minds. There are those who would love to come and lead us astray, but the message of Jesus has for his, that he has for his church is one of hope and one that is grounded in truth. It may be tough, but if you continue to remain faithful, if you would repent and set your mind on the truth that is found in Jesus, then you too will receive a white stone. You'll be invited to a great or to the great banquet of all eternity. Whether we're in Pergamum, Uh, with its great library in Cambridge, with its great library, or if you're online somewhere else, where I'm sure you've got a great library too. Or uh, we are in a true battle, a battle that will, for what our mind sees as true, for the way that will define the way that we live our lives. Satan would love the world around us, uh, or to fix our minds on the truth of the world around us and fix our eyes on things that are seen rather than the things that are unseen. To fix our minds on what we feel like rather than what is truly true. But if we are to do that, we will miss out on knowing the truth and the life that Jesus gives to us all. To really know what is true, we need to fix our minds on Jesus. We need to live our lives grounded in his word. And as we do so, we can then be full of hope that he will sustain us as we remain faithful to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in the silence, we take a moment to hear what you want to say to us this morning. We want to hear your truth. We want to hear your words. We want to hear your voice.
Lord, we praise you that, there are, that you are the source of all truth, that you will never let us down, that you would never lead us astray. And so this morning, we once again come before you and ask for your truth to flood into our lives again. We confess the times where we've trusted the truth of our world and those forces around us rather than the truth that is found in you. We praise you this morning for the hope that we have in you. That even when we are in a battle for our minds, you see us and you promise to sustain us. And as we stand with you who is faithful and true, we praise you that you will lead us into victory and invite us to join with you in that great, wonderful banquet of all eternity. Jesus, by your spirit, would your truth flood into our lives. And may, we always, uh, may you always be our vision, our hope, and our truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.